let's continue to work through Acts this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at the 23rd and 24th verse, Acts chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. As you're turning there in your word, it'll also be on the screen or on your notes page that you picked up in either one of our lobbies. A little bit of context as you're turning to Acts this morning. Uh, When Luke wrote this passage, uh, he was writing about Peter and John, and they were released from prison after they were threatened by the Sanhedrin or the religious council, 71 members strong against these two fellas. And they were threatened by the Sanhedrin council to never speak or teach in Jesus' name ever again. And so the disciples immediately went back and told their uh, either their house church or the larger group of churches that were meeting what the Sanhedrin had said. And the early church responded by prayer and trusting in God's sovereign goodness. So if you have your copy of God's Word open to Acts chapter 4, verses 23 and 24 this morning, let's read that together. It says in Acts 4, 23 and 24, where Luke writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, when they they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's where we're going to stop right there. The first thing I want us to notice, the first point I want to draw out of this particular passage this morning is how the Christian life isn't solo. We don't do this on our own. The Christian life isn't solo. Let's look at verse 23 one more time. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So even though Peter and John were two of the most influential leaders of the church, and especially of the early church, they still relied on the strength and the support of the early church's membership. From what we read in the text, this was a public discussion that Peter and John went and told everybody. It doesn't seem that they went back and told individuals and then they went and told each other and spread like that. It's as if Peter and John went and met with a group of people and told everybody at the same time that this was a public discussion, again, between the disciples and either their house church or a larger group uh, of believers in order to determine what was the best response in order to move forward in the church. How do, we, how do we respond as a group, as a collective, when the Sanhedrin has told us to never teach or preach in Jesus' name again? So the impression that I don't believe we get from this passage is that Peter and John closed themselves off in kind of a, a small selective group, and they trashed the, uh, or badmouthed the, the Sanhedrin and decided for the rest of the church the best way to move forward. It's as if it was public. These two fellas talked about the issue collectively as a group and as a church, as Southside, especially as the Southern Baptist Church. We have accountability structures built into how our churches are run, and we have people who are appointed to care for the more mundane and administrative matters of the church. But the situation in this particular passage in Acts 
wasn't one of those type of situations. It wasn't mundane. It wasn't a small matter. This was something that needed to be addressed by everyone at the same time because it posed a threat. It posed a threat to individuals and it posed a threat collectively to the body of Christ. And it needed to be dealt with and discussed as such. It's important, I believe, for us to understand in this particular verse that there's a both and nature of our faith, that it's both individual and it's collective at the same time. We respond to Jesus, we respond to the gospel on an individual basis, and we're individually accountable to God. But at the same time, at the same time, we have roles and responsibilities as a collective church that we do together. We reach out together. We evangelize together. We do this individually, and we do this collectively. The Bible describes this as a body, that we function as a body. We're not just individuals, but we are a collective called the body. Now, and since it's March, since it's March, occasionally, if you are in my house, you hear me singing uh, a song that we usually sing around Christmas. I tend to whistle and sing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. When I sing that song in March, it means it's March Madness time, okay? I get so excited around March Madness, it's the most wonderful time of the year. During this time, you see teams come together and they put on shows both individually as, as individual players because they're trying to get attention of the NBA scouts, and you also see tremendous showings as a collective, okay, as, as a team. And they're playing at the highest levels of uh, sportsmanship, hopefully, during this time. Now, last week, last week you heard me talk about Kentucky, Kansas. Okay, y'all remember me talking about that? But there's another game that lives in my mind that happened exactly 30 years ago. And this hurts my heart to say, but it has a point. 30 years ago, 1992, I was, I was 11 years old, and I was watching probably the greatest basketball game of all time, Kentucky-Duke, 92. Kentucky was up by one. It was glorious. And at the back of the court, with only two seconds left, this fella, I'm not even going to say his name, he chucks the ball, and on the other end of the court, this other guy, who I'm not going to say his name, Christian Leitner, okay? It's like saying Voldemort in my house, okay? You ca- he catches the ball, and in slow motion, one, two, he shoots, it, he shoots that ball and crushes my 11-year-old heart, okay? I cried like a kid. The entire And I still, when I see that come across TV, I won't look at it. I, st- I am 40 years old, and when I see that, I go, I don't like it. Here's my point. At that point, when Christian Leitner caught that ball and shot it, he made one of the greatest individual shots in sports history. But the victory wasn't Christian Leitner's, it was Duke's. And so when we work together as individuals in a church, we're not just working for our individual glory or our individual good, and it doesn't benefit us individually. When we do good work individually as Christians, we are benefiting the entire 
body of Christ. By the way, secondary note, wasn't it glorious to watch Duke lose last night? Anyways, that's, that's, that's whatever. But I hope you hear my point, though. We do things individually, and it's not just for us, but it's for the collective. And when we do things tremendously as a collective, as the body of Christ, that improves our individual reputations in our workplaces and our schools, okay, when we claim that we're believers. So there's a both and nature to what we do as believers. We put in the work individually, we're accountable as individuals, and we practice, but we're, we're accountable both as uh, individuals and as a collective. Okay, another thing I want us to notice is how they were spiritually supportive of the other disciples in this passage. Now put yourself in the the mind frame of the disciples. Put yourself in the mind frame of these two guys. They healed a man at the beautiful gate. They preached the gospel where thousands of people were coming to Christ. However, did that stop them from being arrested? They were arrested and they were thrown in jail. Imagine how traumatizing that was. Their friends didn't know where they were. They couldn't whip out their iPhone and text their family and say, look, the Romans and the Sanhedrin really just slammed us into jail. None of that happened. Their their family was probably very worried about them. Remember, Peter Peter was married because he had a a mother-in-law, if we remember, um, that, that Jesus healed from a sickness. So we know that Peter had a family. So no doubt when you returned... You're, in a sense, proud that your life reflected so much of Jesus that you were almost convicted for it. But in another sense, you are completely terrified and traumatized because of what the Sanhedrin did to you and what they told you. After all, you have family and friends who are also believers, the same as you, and you don't want the same fate for them either. So our community as a church as Southside Baptist or whatever church that we're ever, we've ever been a part of, is a place that is designed to bring people together, to rejoice together, to pray, to grow. But it's also a place where we come together to find mutual support, where we find camaraderie in a world where we spend the majority of our time with those who may not share our beliefs. And so the church is multifunctional. As an, organi- as an organism. It's designed specifically to teach believers across the entire spectrum of Christian maturity, from infants to the most senior of adults, from those who are new in their walk with Christ to those who have been following Jesus all of their life. We call this process discipleship. It's designed to be a place of sharing the gospel with those who don't know We call this evangelism, but it's designed also for hospitality, for soul care, for sharing our praises and our prayer needs, for lifting our brothers and sisters up when they might feel down. We call this ministry, and we all have a part to play in it. So what should be our first response in doing ministry? Well, the disciples show us and the early church shows us. Our first response, our priority, our first prayer is our first response, our first priority. Verse 24, we're going to look at the beginning of verse 24. I'm going to read the whole verse though. It says, and when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together and God said, sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
Let's be honest. This flies in the face of how most people usually respond to struggle. It usually goes like this, sometimes. Bad situation happens. Figure out who or what's responsible. Cast blame on that thing or person. Find someone else to fix the problem. If it can't be fixed, do your best to fix the problem. If it's still not fixed, then let's pray about it. That's usually how it is. We, we look at prayer as almost a last resort. If everything else fails, then we're going to pray about it. This is how a lot of people function when it comes to struggle. This process can occur in many different situations and many different kinds of scenarios. This process can happen in hours or it can be the process of we go through over the course of years. But the bottom line is that even well-meaning, mature believers in Jesus can view prayer subtly, can be tempted to view prayer as an if-all-else-fails option. If I can't fix it, or if a relative can't fix it, or if my friend can't fix it, or whatever, then, then I'll default to prayer. But this wasn't how the early church thought about it. And this isn't how Jesus teaches us to think about prayer. At the moment, here in this passage, my concern isn't, isn't the specific content of the prayer that they're offering. We'll get to that a little later on. But my concern at this moment is the mind and the heart of the early church who defaulted to prayer as the first point of response to struggle. They saw it. They saw the need. They saw the fear probably in the disciples and in the concern of the early church of threat of persecution. First response, we're going to pray about this. And if we, when we go about solving problems, we always go to whatever we believe will give us the best and most dependable answer. We turn to people and options that have proven themselves over time to be trustworthy and capable, and we go to them. For example, if we have a relationship issue, you may go to your mentor or somebody that you care about, your best friend. If your dryer is busted, you know that you can go to your dad or your granddad and he'll steer you in the right direction or something like that. The disciples viewed the best and most dependable solution to this problem that the Sanhedrin posed was to take it straight to the Lord himself. This was the most dependable, trustworthy, correct response that they believed they could do was to pray straight to the Lord himself. And I believe there is a great stress level that we can carry as believers because we have prayer, our prayer priority out of kilter. When we try to fix everything and either consciously or unconsciously try to control the situations we face, it's no wonder why we become stressed. It's no wonder why we become upset or angry or burned out. And I'm not saying we should forfeit personal responsibility or seek wise counsel from other believers or do everything that's in our power to, to do well by those situations. I sure, sure do believe in that. But I'm saying if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we could end up bearing burdens that are God's alone to carry. Our prayer and giving our burdens over to the sovereignty of Jesus is the most healthy act of spiritual worship that any of us can do. I think the words of the hymn, 
what a friend we have in Jesus are quite helpful here. And I'm going to read them to you, just a short uh, excerpt from it. It says this, Some things we have not because we ask not. When we have a friend who's there, when we're weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care, we should never be discouraged when we take it to the Lord in prayer. Oh, what peace we often, oh, what needless pain we bear. Do you hear the words in that song? What peace we often forfeit, like willingly give it up without even a fight. Because, what, is, what does the song say? Because we just don't start as, as a first response to take it to the Lord in prayer. What needless pain we bear because prayer is, is not a first priority, but it's a 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, so on option. And, and, and I think the, the, the hymn, even though it's, it's got an old uh, hymn style to it, is really profound in its wisdom when we slow down and read. I would encourage you to go back and read, just read the words to what a friend we have in Jesus. And I think it'll be very beneficial and valuable to you, especially when we think about how we should pray, pray and how we should respond to struggles. So prayer isn't limited to an act of petition. It isn't limited to an act of um, asking for stuff all the time. But at its root, it is those things, but it's more than that. At its root, prayer is an act of worship and trust. And not just a, 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 an act of worship and trust in God, but specific thing about God. It's a, it's a worship and trust in God's sovereignty, that he really is in control, that he really does have all things in his hands. So my last point I want to share with you this morning is that prayer is actively, it's an active trust in God's sovereignty. Let's read verse 24 one more time. It says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. It was a qualifier of who they believed the Lord was. It wasn't just Lord. It wasn't just uh, Jesus or, you know, whatever. It was they, they believed wholeheartedly that God was sovereign in all things, that God had a plan in the midst of this terrible news that they received from the Sanhedrin. So they started with Sovereign Lord. They started with worship, and they talked about how Jesus is in control of the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And if that's true, then he definitely has your life and my life in his hands. And it says this, that when they lifted up their voices together, they were in unity on this, that God was sovereign, that he was in control. And that one of the main reasons we trust God in prayer is because we first trust in his sovereignty over all creation, and you are a part of that. Not only does God have the ability and authority to create the universe and everything in it, but he also has full control and authority and right to influence, to shape to the hearts of individuals in ways that he sees fit for his purposes. And Romans talks plainly about this, that he is the that we are the potter and he is the or I'm sorry that we are the pot or we are the clay and he is the potter and that all creation all creation 
is the clay along with that. Those roles are never reversed. He is the potter. We are the clay. Our petitions and requests aren't exactly, aren't exactly the same thing as a coffee shop chat with a friend. It has similarities, but it's not exactly the same thing, even though there is, a, again, a similarity when we talk to our friends about the things we go to. But when we approach God with our fears and our struggles, we're approaching someone with the authority and right to unilaterally act upon those concerns as he wishes, as opposed to a human friend who may care deeply but are still limited in their ability to act in our situation. The early church was confident, totally confident in God's love for them and his ability to work on their behalf for his glory in ways that they couldn't see on their own. And as we've seen throughout Scripture, God has the authority to shape and mold kings, to mold rulers, to mold cultures, to protect in battle, and use the most insignificant of people in situations in whatever manner he chooses, in whatever time and place he chooses. Sometimes this is on our timetable, but many times it's just not. Sometimes the answer seems readily apparent to us. But most of the times, it doesn't. And this might make us wonder that if that's the case, then why pray? Why pray at all if God has this kind of control? If God is totally sovereign in this way, wouldn't that mean he would be unconcerned, perhaps, with the voice of his people? I would disagree totally, 100%. God's sovereignty and overall power does not negate the fact that God deeply desires and in fact commands his people to pray and to request and to voice their desires to him. The Bible goes so far as to say the prayers and worship of the saints are like incense to him. They're beautiful smelling things to him. I don't know how to perfectly articulate or explain how God's sovereignty goes hand in hand with our command to pray. But one thing I do know, if we are believers, then we trust in the sufficiency and the inspiration of Scripture. And if Scripture tells me to pray, then I pray. Another thing I know is if Jesus, who is the most sovereign of all, commands me to pray, tells me how to do it, and even pulls back himself for times of prayer, then I definitely know that I need to do it. Jesus didn't view God the Father's sovereignty in conflict with his command to pray. So it isn't with me either. <laughs> I am fully confident that these two things are perfectly non-contradictory elements in how we're supposed to live and believe as Christians. And I want to go a little farther on this in terms of what prayer means if we trust in his sovereignty. When we are in agreement as a church, as individuals, about the sovereignty of God and are putting that into action through prayer, both individually and as a church body, at that point, prayer is not just talking to a deity or making petitions in our weakest moments. Prayer is an act of worship. Prayer is an act of worship the same as singing, as scripture reading, or giving. Prayer is not the thing we do before 
or after worship or a way to transition from one part of worship to another part of worship. It is the initial and it's the final act of worship in our meetings and the very thing we are commanded to do in Scripture to be doing unceasingly. So here you go. The Christian life isn't a solo effort. We pray as a first response, and doing so is an act of worship and trust in God's sovereignty. So practically, here's three things I want us to consider. Do you ever feel more comfortable being a believer on your own without surrounding church members around you or doing it by yourself? If so, why? What could you be missing out on that investing more that that investing more in with other believers could bring you? Could there be something that the collective body of Christ can offer you rather than just being a believer on your own? Two, do you pray as a first response or a last resort and why? Three, do you view prayer as worship and are you praying like you trust in God's sovereignty? But even bigger picture, and this is where we're going to end this morning. My biggest question to you all this morning is, do you trust him at all? Do you have a relationship with Jesus at all? Because it's impossible to do all the things that we've been talking about this morning if you don't have a relationship with him in the first place. So my big question to you is, have you trusted Jesus and Jesus alone as the Savior of your life? Are you trusting in his death? Are you trusting in his burial, in his resurrection, that it was sufficient to pay the sin debt that you couldn't pay on your own? This morning, if we want to pray as if God is sovereign, if we want to trust in God's sovereignty, then we have to have a relationship with him today, here, right now. As our worship team comes to lead us, I want us to consider that, whether we have a relationship with him. And this morning, if you want to repent of the ways maybe you haven't been trusting God in prayer, trusting in God's sovereignty, this front is open for you. I'll be here to pray with you. If you want to join this church, if you want to be a member here at Southside, I'll also be here this morning at the front waiting for you as the worship team leads us in a song of response. Let's sing.